0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Here we see Gog, who appears to be a person, and he's a leader of Magog. And notice that he's called the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Who are these people that this prophecy is speaking about? Um, Their ancestors by whom they derive their names, these people groups, uh, they are all mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, which is known as the table of nations. These are the nations that descended from Noah's sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, um, who left the ark. All of the nations that exist today um, descend from these nations. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphthah, and Togarma The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now the sons of Japheth were the founders or the, uh, the ancestors of these northern group of nations. Josephus, the Jewish historian, has identified Magog as the Scythians, and there's evidence exists that all three tribes, Magog, Meshach, and Tubal, eventually migrated into the farthest northern regions. Now, Gog is identified as the Prince of Rosh. Rosh has been identified with Russia. Now, Meshach and Tubal, um, Meshach has been Uh, believed to be identified with Moscow, and Tubal has been identified with Tobolsk. Some people disagree with that and think that Meshach and Tubal may also be modern-day Turkey, the nation. Um, I'm not really sure. However, one country uh, that is to the farthest north of Israel is, you guessed it, Russia. So who is the Prince of Rosh? Right now, the president of Russia is a former KGB officer who's been in the news quite a bit lately. His name is Vladimir Putin, and uh, we can't climb inside of uh, Putin's mind and and understand what his motives are and what he's been doing lately, Um, but it looks like he is trying to resurrect the Soviet Empire, the USSR. Uh, back in 2008, he tried to take over uh, the nation of Georgia, the country of Georgia. And uh, and now, of course, after the Olympics, he successfully um, uh, took over Crimea. And it looks like Ukraine is next on his sights, in his sights. I read an article just this morning that said, The title of it said, Top Ukraine Official Fears Imminent Invasion by Russia. Quote, we are in danger. And so, you know, we're we're reading about things that are happening in in the news today that um, uh, when you look at it in view as we're going to look at the rest of this prophecy, um, it looks like uh, things are starting to fit into place. Verse 4 says, I will turn you around. God here is speaking to Gog, the prince of Rosh. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. The question is, what would draw Russia to attack Israel? What would be a hook to catch him and to lead him to attack Israel, because here God says, "I'm going to put a hook into your jaw, and I'm going to lead you out, uh, lead you out of your country, basically, and, and bring you down to attack Israel." What would be a hook that would bring or draw Russia to attack Israel? I believe. The hook could very well be something that is a very recent discovery, and that is the discovery of natural gas fields just off the coast of Israel uh, in Israeli waters in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, an article uh, from February 19th, a Reuters article, uh, written by Stephen Shear, the title of it is Update to Israel's Tamar Gas Field, and $500 million Jordanian export deal. And in that article, he says, the, part, uh, the partners in the Tamar natural gas field off Israel's Mediterranean coast have signed a deal to sell at least $500 million worth of gas over 15 years to two Jordanian companies in the first deal outside of Israel. Tamar... Uh, It goes on a little bit later and says, Tamar, discovered in 2009, is estimated to hold more than 280 billion cubic meters of gas. It began production last March and has already signed a number of lucrative deals in Israel. Uh, The nearby and much larger Leviathan field last month signed a 20-year, $1.2 billion deal to supply gas to a planned Palestinian power plant once Leviathan starts production in 2016 or 2017. Leviathan is estimated to hold some 540 billion cubic meters of gas, enough to supply Europe for a year. So this is very recent news that's been occurring in Israel. Back in 2009, uh, a writer for the New York Post wrote an article entitled, Israel's Fortunes is Putin's horror. And in that article, he said, those fields dubbed Tamar and Leviathan promise Israel an unprecedented degree of energy independence and a lucrative export uh, to market to its Arab neighbors, including Egypt and Jordan. And they threaten to challenge Russian energy giant Gazprom's dominance of the European gas market. So I believe that could very well be this the natural gas discovery as being a hook that would draw Russia down to attack Israel because uh, Israel once all this stuff gets into place and they have certain infrastructure that need they need to put into place and and uh, you know to get all this stuff flowing, but once they get this in place and flowing um, it 's going to be an economic threat to russia and so could very easily see Russia using this as a reason to, to, to be drawn down um, to attack, or God using this, excuse me, to, as, a, as a reason to draw Russia down to attack Israel. Verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma, from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. So we get to these other nations that are described joining Gog and attacking Israel. We have Persia, which is uh, the Iranians. We have Ethiopia, Libya, and, uh, of course, these are nations that exist today. And then Gomer. Gomer has been identified with Crimea, and uh, there's evidence that suggests that that the descendants of Gomer not only settled in the region of Crimea, but they also migrated further west and were the ancestors of the Germanic people, such as Germany. Togamara, or Togarma, um, has been uh, identified as Armenia so then, so that we have these nations that are mentioned, and then it says at the end of verse of that verse six, it says, "And many people are with you." And who are these many people that are not listed by name? Psalm eighty-three um, is a chapter that describes uh, uh, nations around Israel that uh, can form a confederacy together, and they basically want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Doesn't that sound? like uh, current events. Well, Psalm 83, verse 1 says, Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, Come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent, They form a confederacy against you. It's interesting. Oh, so going back to this chapter, uh, Psalm 83. um, as you go further into this chapter, it describes these nations which literally surround Israel. And in Psalm 83, these nations, they want to they wipe Israel off the face of the map. Um, it's interesting that all the nations mentioned um, are either, in, in this passage and as well as in Ezekiel 38, um, are either Muslim nations or their former communist nations, which had atheistic leaders uh, and basically have an atheistic. Foundation. So uh, very interesting. Uh, could those be the nations that are with Gog and uh, uh, join them in their? Uh, attack on Israel. It's possible. I'm not saying it is, but it's possible. Verse 7, "...prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely." the people that have been in the latter years brought back from the sword and gathered from many people, and they brought been brought back into the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. I believe this is specifically prophesying that roughly 2,000-year period of time when the Jews were dispersed from Israel in 70 A.D. up until 1948 when they came back into the land to form the modern nation-state of Israel. I think this is specifically speaking about that long period of time. Um, Verse 9, "...you will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you." That word, ascend could possibly be referring to an aerial attack. Verse 10, "'Thus says the Lord God, "'On that day it shall come to pass "'that thoughts will arise in your mind, "'and you will make an evil plan. "'You will say, "'I will go up against a land of unwalled villages.'" I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Now, some people look at this prophecy and say, well, wait a minute, Israel today is not dwelling in safety They're not in uh, villages that have no bars, no walls, no gates. In fact, today, Israel is very vigilant because all their surrounding neighbors literally would want nothing better than to wipe Israel off the face of the map. And so they say, well, wait a minute, this can't be speaking about now because Israel is not dwelling safely. And so some people think that this battle that's described here takes place during the first half of the great tribulation when antichrist has made a, a peace covenant with israel and israel at that point at least thinks they are dwelling in relative safely uh, excuse me safety others think that psalm 83 that i was reading earlier describes a battle that's going to occur before ezekiel 38 battle and uh, in that battle, all those nations that are wanting to wipe Israel off the face of the map, there'll be some kind of a war and there'll be, um, as a result of that, there will be a period of calm. And then there'll be at that time that uh, the Prince of Rosh decides to come down and attack Israel. You know, man, I tell you, you can find a lot of different opinions about uh, this prophecy. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm not entirely sure myself, but there is one thing that I am sure i am sure of. This battle has not occurred yet in history, but it is going to occur. And Gog, according to the Bible, is going to be defeated. Now, there's lots of conjecture about the timing of this battle, but we'll take a look at that, look at that in uh, a few moments. Verse 13, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, And all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, and to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Now, Sheba is Saudi Arabia, and Dedan is either also part of Saudi Arabia or could be northern Yemen, but in any event, this is an oil, these are oil rich Arab nations, and apparently they do not join the confederacy of Gog and his and his allies that uh, want to attack Israel. They're not going to join it, and notice that they're mentioned with the merchants of Tarshish, and what I think is is being described here is that they're probably aligned economically with the merchants of Tarshish. Um, Tarshish was a grandson of Japheth through Javan, and uh, Tarshish, his name has been associated with the seafaring merchants that spread out over the known world. Dr. Henry Morris thinks... uh, that uh, they were the ancestors of the Greeks. And he also thinks that the young lions described here in verse 13 are possibly referring to the Europeans and to the Americans. And, you know, I don't know for sure myself personally. However, this verse uh, is very interesting to me. It intrigues me because here these nations, they don't join that confederacy. Uh, Instead, it looks like they're uh, economically tied to the merchants of Tarshish, and so there's a there's an economic incentive for them to be aligned together. There's there's some kind of a a mutual benefit in their being aligned with. Uh, these these nations and not joining Gog and, and those nations. And basically, they it looks like they basically diplomatically want to try to solve this. They basically ask the question, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, and to take away livestock and goods to take great plunder? In other words, they don't say, you know, we're going to stand up and we're going to fight you to prevent you from doing this. They basically say, well, hey, have you come down to do this thing? Now, the reason why I say that intrigues me is because if you look at the United States' current foreign policy, um, we have a president right now who makes a lot of bold statements, but when it comes down to it, they're not backed up with actions. And I think that's what this verse thing, verse thirteen, is describing uh, perfectly. And uh, you know, you look at what's happening today in uh, Ukraine, where Putin is is you know he's fomenting unrest in that nation and and he's trying to what appears to be anyways trying to bring that nation the ukrainians back into the fold of the ussr and uh and basically our foreign policy, at least to this point, has been to basically make statements and to Twitter, uh, you know, to use hashtag diplomacy has been described lately in the news. Um, and, and so you see a very weak response to what's happening simply in Ukraine. And, and I think, you know, I don't think this is accidental. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not thrilled about what's happening with our current administration, Um, But I also think that it's really fitting um, that it looks like God is setting the stage for our nation and, and possibly some other nations to no longer be the strong defender of freedom and democracy in the world, and that we're getting to the point where when this battle, this battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, takes place, that either... We are too militarily weak or we're too economically weak or for whatever reason we no longer can stand up against people like Gog, and instead we basically uh, go to the United Nations and declare some kind of a resolution which which does nothing basically and so you look at the you look at the news today and you look at this verse thirteen and man, I tell you it looks like it fits verse. Fourteen. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, "Thus says the Lord God: On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you should, will come from the from uh, your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army." Interestingly enough, the weapons that were described that we read earlier were swords and shields. And when we get down into chapter 39, it talks about bows and arrows and javelins and spears. And you, you, you say, you have to ask yourself the question, why would a modern army use swords and shields and javelins and spears? And the only thing that I can think is that Ezekiel, someone in Ezekiel's day, how would they describe modern artillery? How would they describe guns and stuff? I don't have a problem with Ezekiel's, uh, of course, I don't have a problem with God's word anyways, but I don't have a problem with with Ezekiel's description of the weapons, because how would he know what, you know, how would he describe modern warfare, modern weapons? However, notice that Ezekiel specifically mentions horses. And a horse is a horse, of course, of course. And so, uh, you know, uh, how would Ezekiel, uh, why would he mention horses if he was trying to describe something that, you know, wasn't a horse? So this seems like a very specific prophecy uh, aspect to the prophecy regarding horses. Did you know that during the Afghanistan war, the U.S. used horses on the battlefield in Afghanistan They were used because of the rough terrain in Afghanistan, the mountainous terrain where there were roads that were impassable. Um, You know, if you get terrain that's too bad, too rough... uh, you know vehicles can't travel through some of that terrain uh, but a horse can basically travel through any terrain uh, you know you get you get mud if you hit a rainy season or snow or you get streams that you have to cross and sometimes vehicles can't make it through that type of a terrain and yet a horse there's no problem with a horse um, going through that kind of terrain Not only that but horses don't need fuel and uh, and they're also not subject to do weapons, which is short for directed energy weapons um, there are new technology out there in in the field of weaponry and and they're used direct energy or excuse me directed energy weapons um, are new weapons that are being developed that are designed to take out electronics and I think they use microwave uh, beams to do this but um, in, in any event, just about every vehicle. You know Any form of modern transportation, be it airplanes, helicopters, Jeeps, tanks, what have you, um, Humvees, whatever, they all have electronics in them. And so if you can wipe out the electronics of an armed force invading you, you've basically neutralized them. And so uh, it would make sense in light of that that horses would be a great way to rapidly advance across rough terrain and, and make it into a land uh, quickly to attack a battle and uh, or attack in battle. And it's interesting that Russia, as well as some of the other nations in that area up there in, in, in that region, um, they still use horses. They still have horses that they use uh, in battle. And so very interesting whether or not horses um, are going to be this is literally that there's going to be horses or not. I don't have a problem with that because um, it doesn't. It's not too far fetched um, because of the things that we mentioned. Verse 16. Will you come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land? Excuse me, it's not a question. You will come up against my people Israel like a cl- like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my, pro- by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Gog's actions... Have been prophesied long ago. You know, you and I, God has a plan and a purpose for us as well that has been planned long ago in Ephesians 2 eight, Paul writes for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them God has a plan and a purpose for each and every individual and no one's life is insignificant in God's eyes and, and so God has a plan. He has a plan. He's going to use God for his glory. And God wants to use you and I, the believer, for his glory. And he has a plan that has been prepared for each one of us that for, from long before you and I were even born. Verse eighteen, And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall. Fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations then they shall know that I am the Lord. So God is going to fight this battle and uh, for Israel and he's going to use a tremendous, you know, record-breaking earthquake and he's going to use flooding rain and he's going to use pestilence and bloodshed. And, you know, during this great earthquake or after this great earthquake occurs, you have all these differing nations that have joined together with one common pur- purpose to try to wipe out Israel. And uh, I think in this chaos of this great earthquake that these armies I could easily see them turning against each other in the confusion and, uh, and starting to attack each other and uh, you know You go back into some of the battles that occurred in in the Old Testament with Israel's enemies, and sometimes Israel didn't even have to lift a finger. God fought the battle for them, and in some cases, God basically had the enemy turn on themselves and destroy each other. Um, In others, uh, you know, he used different things. And so uh, this battle, they're going to turn on each other. He's also going to bring them to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. Pestilence, basically disease. And he's going to rain down flooding rain on his troops. And, uh, and it says, and many people are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Notice that it's God who's the one who's going to fight Gog and his armies. You know, uh, the Israel Defense Forces is is one of the best defense forces, one of the fa- best armies in the world. And uh, they've accomplished many things in the years. They have got quite a reputation. Um, and yet, in this battle, they're not going to fight the battle. God's going to fight the battle for them. And there's a reason why God's going to fight the battle for them. Verse Uh, chapter 39, verse 1, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God, and I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 7. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name any more. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken." John Walvoord, in his book, Every Prophecy of the Bible, says this, A search of history finds no such battle or outcome. Accordingly, as illustrated in countless other passages, prophecy that has not been fulfilled is subject to future fulfillment just as literally as the prophecies were filled fulfilled in the past. In other words, what, what, what John Walvoord is saying is basically... Um, he, he can't find any historic fulfillment of this prophecy. And so uh, when he looks back, and and, and that's my theory too, when, when I look back at past history, at past prophecies, when God says that he's going to do something, it's fulfilled literally as God said it in his word. And so past prophecies have been fulfilled literally. So when I look to future prophecies, I believe that, I have no reason not to believe that they will not be fulfilled uh, literally, and so I don't look at that and go, "Well, this must be symbolic, and you know that there's this is symbolically going to happen, and it's not really going to happen the way God's word says it." No, I look back and I see fulfillment of prophecy literally happening as God said it, and so I look forward to these prophecies and I say, "You know what? These are going to be fulfilled literally too, just as God." has said it. And God here in verse 8 says, Surely it is coming, this battle. Surely it is coming. In other words, it is approaching. And folks, I think it's approaching closer than any one of us would like to admit. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord. So it's going to happen. It's coming, and it's going to happen. Verse 9, Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set fire Uh, "...set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years." They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forests because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillage them, says the Lord God. And so at the end of this battle, God's going God's to end this battle by destroying Gog and his allies on the mountains of Israel. And uh, there's going to be such an accumulation of, of artillery, of weapons, and, and, and loot, and you know, equipment that Israel is going to take, probably the gun stocks, maybe other items, they're going to use those for fuel to burn for heating or whatever, and it's going to take them, it's going to be seven years worth of wood and of equipment for fuel. That's a very specific prophecy, a very specific aspect to this prophecy. Verse 11, It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. There's going to be so much bodies, so many bodies just littered on the ground there, that it's actually going to make travel, that area is going to be impassable because of the amount of of carnage of of bodies there. And so it's going to take Israel seven months to bury the bodies and to cleanse the land. Verse 13, Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying when they gain, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. And at the end of seven months, they will make a search. Notice that it says the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it. Very interestingly, I think... Uh, I think there's an aspect of this that has already been fulfilled and that's with the formation of a group known as Z-A-K-A, and I'm going to pronounce it Zaka because I don't know how it's actually pronounced, but um, in uh, Zaka is a group of volunteers. They were founded in 1989 in Israel, and they were originally formed to respond to all the terror attacks that were occurring at that time in Israel, and they dealt with the retrieval uh, of, of body parts and the identica- identification of bodies and, and the burial of the deceased. And since then, and this is according to their website, since then, Zaka has grown to a world-renowned humanitarian organization, world-renowned, providing search and rescue autopsy prevention, medical response, and mortuary services. With over 2,800 volunteers based in over 15 countries, ZACA can provide rapid response and deployment in short notice, providing their expertise and equipment where needed. So Israel already has a group that is world-renowned of volunteers that uh, they basically, when uh, you know, as cruded as as it is to describe it, when 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 bodies are blown apart and there's pieces of bodies all over, this group of people come in and they they collect the bodies, they 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 bury them, they identify them, they they do all that basically cleanup of, of the carnage and that's what's being described here in um, Ezekiel chapter 39 and so very interesting that uh, you know you, you read it uh, in the Bible here and what do you know it exists today in Israel very fascinating Verse fifteen: The search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set a mar- set up a marker by it, till the buriers have buried it in the valley of Haman-Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamona. Thus, they shall cleanse the land. Now, I used to think that this sounded like kind of a, a hazardous. Uh, material kind of a cleanup thing where maybe there was uh, radioactive debris, uh, maybe you know there were radioactive weapons that were used, or or biological agents that were used, or chemical warfare, and so they'd have these teams of of Israelis going through the land, and they'd find some some uh, contaminated uh, bones or body parts, and they'd put this this marker up, and then this this hazmat kind of a team would come up after them and, and start cleaning it up, and and you know and, and when I look at it, I go boy that sure sounds like something like that. But when you look at this battle, if God destroys Gog and his and his armies, you know, God doesn't need a weapon of mass destruction. And we already read that God's going to use an earthquake and these different things, and the army's going to turn on themselves. And so... Um, I don't know that this has anything to do with a chemical or radioactive or biological agent type of a cleanup. I think this literally just means that they're going to take, you know, they're going to cleanse the land of all the dead bodies that are laying on the ground, and they're going to give them, uh, you know, they're going to bury them and get them out of, out of the site and, and to, in order to cleanse the land. Um, I could be wrong, but that's uh, the way I read this. Verse 17, And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, Speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. A great sacrificial meal in the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan." Verse 19, you shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. This sounds, uh, you know, here God is speaking to the to the animals, basically like the vultures and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the wild animals and basically saying, you know, Here's this feast for you of all these of all these dead uh soldiers and armies of Gog and Magog. And uh it sounds very similar to the battle of Armageddon described in Revelation nineteen verses seventeen through eighteen. And so the question is risen, and, and some people believe this, you know, is this describing the same battle, the battle of Armageddon? Um there are some similarities. Obviously, this passage is, sounds very similar, but I don't believe Ezekiel is describing the same battle. I believe these are two different battles. Why do I say that? Well, the Battle of Armageddon, as described in the book of Revelation, the armies are going to surround Jerusalem. And in this battle, the Battle of Ezekiel, Jerusalem is never mentioned. In the Battle of uh, Ezekiel, also armies come from the north and they die on the northern mountains of Israel. It sounds like they never even make it to Jerusalem. Now, the Battle of Armageddon, all nations, all nations of the world are led by Antichrist and they all come and descend on Israel to attack Israel. In this battle, the battle of Ezekiel, not all the nations participate. We read that in verse 13. Sheba, Dedan, and the young lions, they're going to basically do some kind of a resolution or whatever, you know, use d- diplomatic things. They're going to come against them with diplomacy or whatever. But they're not joining in the battle. And yet in the battle of Armageddon, all nations, and that would mean if we are a nation that exists that day, us too, the United States, all nations are going to come against Israel. And so in this battle, the battle of Ezekiel, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Also, <clears throat> the battle of Armageddon ends when Jesus returns with his saints and uh, wipes... Out the enemies of the Antichrist, or the armies of the Antichrist, with the breath of his mouth. This battle in Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine, God's going to use a, an earthquake and pestilence, and the armies are going to turn against each other. And there's going to be a, a flooding rain and hail and brimstones. And so, um, this looks like two different events in my eyes. The Battle of Armageddon uh, is at the end of the Great Tribulation. And it ushers in the millennial reign of Christ from Jerusalem. And in this battle, this battle, Israel buries the bodies for seven months. And even at the end of seven months, they're not quite finished. They're still sending out search parties. The battle of Ezekiel, as we read, it also describes a time where Israel's going to burn the weapons for fuel for seven years. Now, granted, uh, that... You know they could be burning weapons into the millennium you know if that if if this was the same battle I'll give you that or I'll grant you that. But when you look at all these other aspects, all these other parts of this prophecy, and you compare it to the Battle of Armageddon, it honestly looks to me like it's two different battles verse twenty one I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. The reason why God's going uh, to fight Israel's battle is to show the world uh, who He is, and that, and to show the world that Israel is His people, and also that Israel will recognize that God, uh, that Jesus is their Messiah. Verse 25, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name, after they have borne their shame, and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, uh, when they dwell safely in their own land, And no one made them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel says the Lord God. So when exactly will this battle take place? And my answer is, I don't know. It appears that this battle is going to take place near, uh, near the end of the church age, uh, or at the very end of the church age. Now, when I'm talking about the church age, what am I talking about in Romans 11:25, Paul wrote, "For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in." The fullness of the Gentiles, what Paul is talking about is, you know, right now we are living in what's known as the church age. And there's 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 going to be an end to that age, and that age ends when the la- literally the last Gentile, the last person prays to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. The last person who's going to be born again is born again. That's when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and at that point, that's when I believe the Bible teaches that the rapture occurs. and uh, And so, when is this battle going to take place? Well, you know, it's at the end of this. Jesus says He's going to pour out His Spirit on his people, the people of Israel. And so, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure if this occurs during the tribulation or if it occurs before the tribulation. What I think is a mistake to do, however, is to presume that this battle has to happen Prior to the return of Christ for His church, and why do I say that? Because Jesus, when He was speaking to His disciples uh, in Matthew 24, and they were asking Him, "Tell me, tell us about the last times. Tell us about when Your return, and when all these things take place." And in that passage of Scripture, Jesus says this to his disciples, and I think he says it to us as well. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. You see, if we develop this timeline and say, well, this battle has to occur Before Jesus Christ returns. Now, I'm not saying it's possible that that's the case, but if we say that it has to happen before then, then what are we doing? We're going to say, well, you know, Jesus isn't coming back until this battle takes place, so I'm just going to watch the news and wait until I see that battle, and then I'm going to get ready, because then Jesus is returning. That is a mistake. Jesus said, no man knows the hour and the time when he comes, He's going to come as a thief in the night for his church, and we need to be ready for his church, uh, for his return. And so um, I don't want to be looking... For when this battle is going to take place, now I do believe that is on the very near horizon. You look at the news, you you read your Bible. You know what's fascinating about living in our generation is that you can take your Bible in one hand, you can take your your laptop, or your iPod, or your your newspaper, or however you get the current events, and you can you can read them and and look at them in, in light of prophecy, and you can see how things are starting to fall into place. To the, for the fulfillment of these things. And, uh, and so I think it's a mistake to start focusing on a battle that has to take place before Christ's return, rather than saying, you know what, Lord Jesus, I'm looking for your return, and I want to be ready when you come back, and, and, and I want to be found faithful when you return for me, Lord Jesus. And so I think that's where our focus needs to be on the return of Jesus Christ for his church. And so, you know, that's why I don't get too excited about trying to figure out exactly when this battle takes place. I know that it's going to happen because God says it's going to happen. I know it's approaching, and I and I honestly believe it's approaching soon. And I think it's going to be fulfilled literally just as God said, because all the prophecies that God has said in the past have been fulfilled literally. And so I think it's going to happen literally. I know it's going to happen, and I think it's happening soon. But my focus is not on a battle in that takes place in the Middle East. My focus is on Jesus Christ. I want to look up because my redemption is drawing near. Amen.